everyone, my name is Victor Buenan, and I'm excited to welcome you to another episode of Around the Block. Today we're going to be discussing Tornado Cash, OFAC, sanctions, and all the news and implications for our industry, United States citizens, and the world. With me today, I have Sheila Warren, the CEO of the Crypto Council of Innovation, Jake Travinsky, who is the head of policy for the Blockchain Association, and Faryar Sherzad, who's the head of policy for Coinbase. And with that, let's dive in. So maybe to kick us off, I'd love to just understand a little bit more about, you know, the standard cash situation. Um, a lot of folks have talked about mixers and kind of everything that's going on. And I was wondering, maybe Faryar, we'll start with you. Um, if you could help us get just like an understanding of like the overview of the situation, like what's happening, um, you know, what changed, why is it impactful? Yeah, thanks, Victor. Thanks for having me on. It's a really important topic. And so I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. So what happened is on uh, August 8th, uh, OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Assets Control at the Department of Treasury, announced that they were designating Tornado Cash as, a, as an SDN, as a specially designated national. And they said that they uh, had found evidence that there was transmittal of illicit funds to North Korea. And because of this, they were going to essentially apply uh, SDN sanctions onto uh, Tornado Cash. This, at a very high superficial level, is fine. This is the kind of thing that OFAC does, they sanction individuals, entities, bad actors uh, who are engaging in activity that the government deems to be a violation of national security. And so at a surface level, this was very much along the lines of things the government does. But if you dig into this a little bit, you realize how complex what they, uh, is the situation here and the fact that how the facts are actually makes this a much more controversial decision by OFAC. And you have to start by the fact that Tornado Cash is not an entity or a person, it's actually a software protocol. And so what you had is for the first time, the government designating a open source software protocol as a specially designated national. And by doing this, it raises all sorts of questions. It raises constitutional questions regarding whether the writing of software is a free expression uh, along the lines of being protected by the First Amendment. It raises questions about the collateral damage to all the people who use Tornado Cash for perfectly legitimate reasons, including Americans who've now had their assets frozen without any opportunity for redress. Uh, and it raises real questions about why the government didn't explain more fully why they made this significant leap in terms of you know, sanctions policy. And this lack of explanation by the government has raised all sorts of questions that have caused enormous controversy that I think conversations like this are designed to air out and hopefully the government will clarify in some fashion, but the implications are vast. I know we'll go through them over the course of this discussion, but it's a pretty big step the government took and I, it's unclear whether they fully appreciated what they've done. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge overview, um, extremely meaty. For, but for the purpose of being as complete as we can, Jake and Sheila, is there anything you want to add? I'll just I'll just chime in to, to echo something Fargar said, which is this is not the first time we've seen sanctions in the crypto context and sanctions predate crypto. They were not created as a response or in any way. They weren't about crypto. They go all the way back and really started being used in full force around the time of the Patriot Act post 9-11. And so the idea here behind sanctions is to disallow certain designated actors, they're called SDNs, as, as Fargar noted, from having access essentially to international financial flows. The idea is to cut off sources of funding for them. And the ultimate, the, the behind the scenes goal of that is basically it's a deterrent, it's a punishment for perceived bad behavior. And so um, I think the, 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 these have largely been used to the point, well, historically actually they have 
always been used uh, for entities, for individuals, for companies, you know, for others. I think the kind of trope around this is like the Russian oligarch, right, who has to go hide the yacht somewhere because they can't move money through interna the international financial community. So this departure from the precedent and the history around the way sanctions have been used, again, this is not the first time sanctions have been aimed at the crypto community, right? But the difference here is what is really significant and is why you're, you're seeing so much more attention paid to this particular occurrence of a sanctions regimen as opposed to previous ones that have happened. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I was actually going to say something similar. So I guess Sheila and I are on a, a similar wavelength today. But I mean, just to, to underscore sort of how unusual this is, I think it is important to understand what the purpose of sanctions are in the first place. And just like Sheila said, the point is identifying specific bad actors outside of the U.S. and then imposing sanctions on them to correct their behavior, at least in the eyes of, of U.S. Uh, policymakers and especially foreign policy experts, right? The idea is someone somewhere else in the world is doing something inconsistent with the preferences of the United States. And as punishment for whatever that thing is, whether it's a Russian oligarch supporting the Putin regime or it's, uh, you know, the Iranian government pursuing a nuclear weapon or any of these types of examples, as punishment for that behavior, that target is cut off from the U.S. economy. That's a really serious punishment because access to the U.S. economy, you know, not just to cut off sources of funding, but also just to be able to buy goods and services that are provided by U.S. companies or purchase resources here or sell products and services into the U.S. market, you know, those are really important things for any business in, in the world to do. And so sanctions are effectively a tool of foreign policy to try to bring foreign actors in line with whatever the U.S. policy preferences are. The weird thing about this instance is Tornado Cash is not an entity that can comply or not comply with, you know, U.S. preferences, right? And, and even when they do the sanctions, they have to designate a specific person or entity or their property, as, as Sheila explained. And here they say Tornado Cash is the entity subject to sanctions. And that really just introduces a lot of confusion for all of us because a piece of software, right, a decentralized protocol, which is just an inanimate object, can't be compelled to do something that the U.S. government wants it to do. So that sort of leaves us all in this position of, of not really knowing what the intent of the sanctions were, in what way does this carry out some U.S. foreign policy goal, and how the rest of the, of the folks building in this space can make sure that they aren't the next target of, of you know, OFAC deciding some other piece of software should be sanctioned. I think the part that I'd love to focus on a little bit is... Can you tell me a little bit? So, Jake, the way you were describing sanctions in, ter in terms of how they're designated, can you tell me a little bit more about you know the processes and, and the intention behind sanctions and what considerations do they take into account typically um, to ensure that they're applied in the most appropriate appropriate way? Sanctions laws themselves are extraordinarily broad. Basically, the way it works is the president is authorized by a federal statute called IEPA to basically declare a national emergency to say that there is some emergency that requires the imposition of sanctions. And so the president is the source of, of most, although Congress can do this as well, the president is the source of most sanctioning authority, which then gives authority to the Treasury Department and specifically to OFAC to make those decisions about who should be added to the SDM list, as Faryar was explaining. The sanctions against Tornado Cash were under the cyber-related sanctions program. So there's an executive order that the president put out. This was President Bush maybe 20 years ago, I think. Uh, if I have that, I think I have that right. Um, uh, 
authorizing OFAC to do designations related to cybercrime, essentially. And what that means is OFAC broadly has a lot of latitude to decide who they want to sanction and who they don't. It's less of a legal determination. It really is more a determination of policy, right? At what point are sanctions the right tool for the U.S. to use to try to influence the behavior of some foreign actor? And often, you know, maybe most recently, as Sheila was saying, we saw an example of this with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? So the U.S. response was to impose sanctions on the Russian regime. Basically, what they were saying was, you no longer have access to U.S. markets. If you want that access back, you need to withdraw from Ukraine. Again, it's a way to try to influence the behavior of some foreign actor. Here in the Tornado Cash instance, again, very unclear who it is that the U.S. government would be trying to influence. Is it North Korea? That doesn't make a lot of sense because there's a totally separate North Korean sanctions program, and that was not what OFAC invoked to do the sanctions here. So, you know, again, sort of unclear what's going on in this specific instance, but that's that's probably what sanctions are for. And yeah, OFAC basically gets to decide when they want to, to issue sanctions. Some of their sanctions have been challenged. Courts tend, and I, I sort of hate to say this, but the reality is courts tend to be very deferential to OFAC's decisions just because it involves national security. And if you tell a judge that terrorism or money laundering is involved, then they, they tend to side with the government. So it is very difficult to challenge OFAC's authority. This is more about convincing them to do what we think is the right thing, as opposed to telling them what they are legally allowed or not allowed to do. What's interesting here is it's less of an issue of whether some bad actor was using tornado cash that we're puzzling about. So we're not here saying uh, disputing. Now, none of us specifically know, but we're all, I think, willing to stipulate that some bad actors use tornado cash for bad purposes. And that's not what our concern turns on. What our concern turns on is the exercise of national security power is usually done with enormous care to make sure you're hitting the right person, that the policy benefit is understandable and tangible, and that the collateral damage on Americans is mitigated and only goes as far as absolutely necessary. None of those normal precautions were applied here, and no explanation was given, and it sends an enormously chilling message to innovators, software developers, crypto community, in ways that are way out of proportion to how decisions like this have been made. You know, we all have actually a lot of respect for OFAC. OFAC is generally a very careful, cautious um, agency. This is a bit out of character, and I think that's part of the reason why we're all scratching our heads over, over this, uh, this announcement. Yeah, and not to belabor, I think, the history here, but I do think it's interesting to think about how sanctions have been deployed as an economic weapon, right? So pre kind of 9-11 and that era, you really had, it was really, sanctions were primarily aimed at state actors. Iran, Jake brought up earlier as a great example, apartheid in South Africa. There were sanctions put on that government that was enforcing apartheid to say, if you do that, we're not going to allow you access to, again, these financial flows. It's going to cripple your economy, right? So they were really largely state-to-state -state actions, not exclusively, but largely. That shifted tremendously after, nine, in the post-9-11 era, a lot of these, the approach and the tool was sharpened and honed to focus on individuals and entities that were aiding and abetting largely rogue states, using that term very generically, right, 
uh, North Korea being an example, but in other cases for as a part of a diplomacy option that included everything from sending in the State Department to have conversations up to declaring war, right? It's part of that tool set. Again, the, designa- the, the design behind the, the broader public policy goal is to one could argue in the laudable way, preserve American democracy, framing it a different way, you know, imposing American values on people who may or may not want them, right? Both those things, I think, depending on your political point of view, you could argue are the case. Regardless, there has always been, to Farrier's point, a very careful analysis. It's pretty obvious. Like the people who were sanctioned, generally speaking, were folks who had pretty obvious ties to some of these regimes, even when we shifted from the state level sanctions regimes into the individual and entity sanctions regimes. And so, again, when you look at a bad actor, the idea that you want to categorically deny that bad actor access to funding is an understandable thing. And you just argue about who's the actor, right? Here, it's the mechanism that has been pulled into this. It's not the actor, it is the way. So this would be like saying, you know, a bank had, you know, a handful or an unknown amount of exit customers that engage in some kind of activity. Rather than targeting those customers, you'd shut down the whole bank and say the entire process is fundamentally flawed. And again, what is really confusing is that some of the language used here doesn't actually match what's how these things operate, like how mixers operate. And that is, it leaves people just scratching their heads a bit. Now, the other thing I do want to note is that we are expecting additional guidance from OFAC to clarify some of these things. Many of us have had conversations with people in the agency to articulate, like, this is confusing and here is why, right? Or it doesn't really make sense and here is why. What that guidance will say, we don't know, but it is not the case that OFAC is expecting to just let this stand and does not, you know, is not planning to at least issue some additional guidance around this. We are all kind of waiting, frankly, with bated breath to see what that looks like and when it drops. And I think that Maybe something I want to do for our viewers is, you know, we talk a lot, and, and Sheila, you really dialed in on this, um, just around like the implications of what's happening and like how it is like a weird application of, you know, sanctions to be applied to a technology specifically, right? And the example that you used is a bank. Um, a way that I like to think about it is that, you know, it's like applying sanctions to like roads or the internet or whatever it is, it's like all these things that are intermediary technologies that you know, can be used by individuals, can be used by groups, but are fundamentally like, you know, technologies that, that we all engage with. Um, something I'd love to do is I'd love to maybe like take a step back and like right now we're making the assumption that like, hey, this was, you know, in some ways like a little bit of a non-obvious move, maybe let's put it that way. Um, but I'd love it if somebody could help us understand exactly it's like, okay, like what is, you know, what is a mixer? What is Tornado Cash? Like, what is it exactly that is being sanctioned? Like, what is it being used for, right? Like, help us provide some of that context for the viewers. Stepping back for a second, um, Ethereum, which is where the Tornado Cash protocol lived, is a public blockchain, right? What this means is every transaction on the Ethereum blockchain is publicly and transparently visible to every other person, right? And addresses on the Ethereum blockchain, in other words, like the wallet where you have assets, are pseudonymous, meaning there's no name necessarily attached directly to the wallet, but the wallet can be used over and over again. And if the wallet is ever associated with a specific person, what that means is all of that person's transactions can be seen by everyone all the time for the rest of history, as long as the Ethereum blockchain you know, continues to, to exist. Um, that is beneficial in some ways. It's also very challenging for people who don't want everybody in the world to know every single transaction that they conduct 
on a public blockchain, right? Just imagine if someone said to you, please publish your bank statements every single month for the entire world to, to see everything that you're spending money on, right? That is, is not um, a type of financial system that respects our right to privacy, nor is it one where we wanna have more activity. So Tornado Cash, is a solution to this problem. It is a privacy tool that allows you to transact on the Ethereum blockchain without having every single transaction tied to your wallet or to your identity. It's referred to as a mixer because the way that it works essentially is by allowing users on Ethereum to supply assets to a pool inside the Tornado Cash protocol, and then to withdraw those assets from the pool to another address without there being a connection between the receiving address and the initial supplying address. So to make this a little bit more clear, let's say I have 10 Ether, and I want to move that 10 Ether from a wallet that everyone knows belongs to me, Jake Trevinsky, to some other wallet that is pseudonymous, that nobody knows that I have control over it. I could supply the 10 Ether to the Tornado Cash protocol, wait some amount of time, and then I could withdraw it to some other address, and you would not know that I, Jake Trevinsky, was the person who had initially deposited that 10 Ether. So how does North Korea get, get involved in, in this whole picture? The way that Tornado Cash provides that level of privacy is by creating something called an anonymity set. In other words, you have a whole bunch of people who are using this protocol, and some of them are known and identified, like me, Jake Trevinsky, right? You know that I am a person who put 10 Ether into the, into the pool. But because there are so many other people who are also depositing, some of whom have been identified, some of whom haven't, when any person withdraws from the pool, you don't know which initial person supplied those assets. So all you know is it was one of these many addresses that supplied assets who then received assets on the other side. And that provides a level of privacy, right? It's one of many different ways that you can have privacy in the context of a public blockchain. Right. And and, and centralized mixers have also existed and have also been sanctioned before. Is, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So can you like really spell it out for us? Like, you know, why is it so different this time to sanction Tornado Cash in this instance? And it's like, it's not Tornado Cash entity, so Tornado Cash smart contract is, is, is my understanding, right? It's like the byte code itself is being sanctioned. Yeah, so great question. So fundamental difference between a centralized mixer, right, which is a custodial business that is offering a proprietary service of, of providing anonymity or pseudonymity to customers of that service versus something like Tornado Cash, a decentralized protocol, right, a, a piece of software that runs on a public blockchain but is not owned or controlled by anyone and does not require users to give up their custody, right? In the first context, a centralized mixer, this is is genuinely just like any other money transmitter, a regulated financial institution that says, give me your money, trust me, I will do a good job of, of keeping it safe, and I will, in this instance, mix it with other people's assets, so I'll send it back to you at a different wallet address, and unless someone comes to me to ask me who you are, no one is gonna be able to identify the owner of those assets once I send them out to some other address, right? I'm just a, a guy running a business as a centralized mixer. In the Tornado Cash context, totally different. Instead, what you have is software that programmatically provides the same type of service as I described. It creates an anonymity set 
that allows users to get privacy, but those users are not relying on any trusted third party, on any centralized intermediary in order for this service to work. There is no person who has custody of their assets. There's no person who can identify them. It just works based on the code. And as you said, when OFAC did its sanctions, it listed as the entity being sanctioned Tornado Cash, but then it also listed all of the smart contract addresses that comprise the Tornado Cash protocol. So what this means is if you're a US person, it is illegal for you to conduct a, an Ethereum transaction that involves any of those smart contracts. So when those centralized mixers were sanctioned, it was don't become a customer of this business. Now we're saying don't use this neutral tool that is a Available for anyone anywhere in the world to use. You know, as Jake mentioned, like this is impacting, uh, you know, U United States citizens, right? That that have been using uh, Tornado Cash in a perfectly legal and compliant way until the sanctions. Um, and so, I'd love it if one of you could comment a little bit about, you know, what do these sanctions mean for U.S. citizens? Like, how are people being impacted by them? I think people, uh, you know, uh, you know, you could argue that it's a privacy protocol and maybe not a mixer because of that specific reason that you said, Victor, but. If I had put my money into Tornado Cash and I had not yet withdrawn it before August 8th, uh, my money is now frozen. And as you said, I did nothing wrong. I interacted, I used a, a tool, a piece of uh, infrastructure um, to get a level of privacy that is well within my rights to get uh, for no illicit purposes, having nothing to do with North Korea. Uh, but I just had the bad luck of not having withdrawn it before August 8th. And the result of the decision by the Treasury Department is that I no longer can get my money back. I have no opportunity for redress because only the named uh, entity under the OFAC order is, has, the, um, has the legal standing to go in and seek redress. And so now I'm you know, essentially um, out of money uh, without any rights of, of, or recourse uh, under a legal regime that if by some chance I were able to get standing, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of deference paid to the government. And so it's a really, really unfortunate uh, policy with all sorts of terrible uh, policy consequences, which we should probably all talk about it as well, which are, what does this mean for any other sort of uh, technology, an encrypted email or encrypted text uh, or, you know, I don't know. And, you know, you can think of any number of other digital solutions as we go more and more online that you know relate to crypto or relate otherwise, uh, just is the fact that we used a neutral tool for perfectly legal reasons, but a bad person uh, also used that same tool. Does that mean we're now essentially going to be caught in this net with no opportunity for recourse on the other end of it? And I think that's a really important question that needs to be aired out, and the government should should make some effort to address. Yeah, yeah I mean, I agree with all of that. I also think it's it's. I think it's really important for how you frame this, right? Because I think, it, leaving aside what's possible, the way that most people use Tornado Cash was they were kind of, you can think of it, they were on both sides of the transaction, right? They were sending money to themselves through this mechanism, right? Now, that isn't necessarily always the case. There are plenty of, you know, mixers and similar type things where you are kind of sending something, the recipient is a different, you know, individ individual entity, whatever. But again, remember, as we talked about, sanctioning an address that is tied to a known bad actor is something I think we're all saying, at least what I've heard us all agree on, is like, have at it, right? Like, that is very similar to how we thought about the freezing of a bank account or whatever that was 
owned by, you know, a, again, a bad actor. We're not going to get into the discussion of bad actor. I think that's important, right? And to Fargo's point here, the, you know, the, the majority, I think it's very safe to say that most people who were doing this were engaging in licit, perfectly legal, and everyone would agree with this, including the U.S. government, and they were doing that because privacy is valued. And I think Jake's framed this so well to say, rather than having every single thing you do be on the public blockchain, which again, it's not that anyone has anything to hide. It's that the consequence of any of those transactions you being identified means that the entire history of engagement with that wallet is then known. So it's not just that this particular transaction, you don't want to, you know, so anything that you did that might be I don't know, just private for whatever reason. There are a million reasons people want privacy that have nothing to do with illegal activity. And so the consequence here is that even those who were just supporting the concept of privacy and saying we should have the ability to engage with ourselves in this way and to not have that be visible to everybody who can read a block explorer is something that we value. And people who did it just for that reason alone, to demonstrate that point, are now caught in this universe where their funds are trapped. And in some cases, we're talking significant amounts of money are trapped and frozen, and they can't do anything with that. And I agree, it has broader consequences around what other tools might be implicated in ordinary, what I think most of us would call ordinary encryption or privacy methodologies that we may take for granted now that could be, maybe there's a, I don't know, maybe I don't want to be overly, you know, um, paranoid about it, because I don't think the intention was to create precedent to implicate this broad, gigantic, you know, slew of things. However, you know, this is how creep happens, right? So it's, it behooves us all to pay very close attention. I just wanted to add sort of a philosophical point in addition to those very accurate practical points, which is, I think the sanctions strike at the heart of what we are trying to do in crypto in a way we have not seen from the US government before. Um, what I mean by that is when we talk about decentralization, which is at the heart of everything that we're doing in the crypto space, the reason that we like decentralization is because it delivers a system that is permissionless and censorship resistant, right? That is the purpose of building a public blockchain among other you know, reasons, but that's sort of the, the core and the heart of what we're doing here. And I think part of that stems from a belief within, um, within the industry, but also just you know, among folks who are excited about this technology, that there's a fundamental flaw in the traditional financial system, which is that it relies on centralized intermediaries and that governments have used their ability to coerce those centralized intermediaries um, in order to make the wrong trade-off, which is to be exclusionary, right? Which is to try to limit potentially harmful or illicit activity, which is a good goal, but to overcorrect for limiting that type of activity in um, at the expense of allowing people in the world to access financial services. I think that accessing financial services should be a, a fundamental human right. I don't know how you can try to succeed in this world without having access to basic financial services. And yet the vast majority of human beings on this planet, I think you know, six billion people or so, do not have that access. And part of the motivating principle of crypto is we want to create credibly neutral, permissionless, accessible systems that everybody in the world can use, even if that means the bad guys get to use it too. And we want to find other ways to empower law enforcement to go after the bad guys who we do not support, right? Make no mistake, no one here is a fan of Kim Jong-un or his brutal dictatorship, right? And all of his human rights abuses. All we're saying is we don't want to sacrifice privacy and the right of access to financial services for everyone in the world 
in the way that the traditional financial system has. And I think the reason folks are reacting so strongly to these sanctions is because it sounds like the Treasury Department saying, we are going to treat crypto exactly the same way as we've treated the traditional financial system. We're going to dictate who can and who cannot use these tools. And even if they are neutral tools, freely accessible to everyone, everywhere at any time, we still have the power to say, you are not allowed to use this. And I think that's, that's sort of a, a threat to the heart of crypto that we haven't seen before from the U.S. government. I'm not saying it's intended that way, but I do think that's how it's been received. Yeah, there, there's something you said that reminds me of this like really famous talk by Andreas Antonopoulos, who is this incredible teacher, um, educator. I don't know how to describe him of like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and crypto generally. Um, but he talks a lot about the deputization of financial institutions of, you know, if you carry out the government's will and help enforce all these rules, um, then that gives you special privileges. And so you have banks such as HSBCs that have dozens and dozens um, of various cases brought against them for money laundering and other things. Um, and from that perspective, like very few of them actually go to jail just because of this um, kind of like deputization that, that has happened. And so it's very difficult to have that within crypto because there's there's nobody on the other side, right? Like, you know, something like Tornado Cash, um, you know, the contracts run autonomously, right? And so there's nobody there to come and to kind of come and, and exert your will uh, upon. So it actually becomes like very, very difficult. And it's not to say that enforcement is not possible, right? There are a ton of tools for enforcement. There's a ton of tools for, you know, working for you know, the police and regulatory agencies. It just changes the dynamic a little bit. And so it requires for everybody to readjust to like, how to actually carry out those things now. I agree with that. And it's also a good segue to what I was going to say, which is a sanction is in a way a, a second best solution. The, the surgical approach that the government can take and prefers to take is to directly target the bad actors for the bad activity. And so there's all sorts of law enforcement tools associated um, with doing exactly that and that are within the reach of the government to get at bad actors doing bad things and hitting them in ways that actually achieve the intended purpose without collateral damage. And then in some instances where, only, where necessary with, you know, with a high hurdle associated with it, uh, you have a broader sanction that you apply when more surgical tools aren't available. And I think the point you made earlier is a really important one. You know, the collateral damage here involves Americans who put their money in legitimately for perfectly legal reasons and who now can't withdraw it. So this is something that's really consequential in ways that I think uh, you know, it will have to play out over, over some time, even though we're hoping, as Sheila said, the clarifications of the FAQs, the frequently answered uh, asked questions, which is a mechanism by which OFAC addresses confusion around its decisions. We are hoping those address it, but it's, it's hard to see FAQs as getting to the heart of the infirmities of what the government has done. I also think we're in a situation where we're seeing code and, and the First Amendment in contrast with, as I forget which one of you said this, on the other side of this is national security and the safety and security of the American people and you know democracy and all these kinds of things that when you weigh those against each other, it, it is challenging. Now, I think all of us are being called to take a position on this and to understand, you know, we there is a balance to be struck here. This is not that, you know, this was a bulldozer where we were looking for a scalpel. How do we create a scalpel-like situation that is more broadly understood? How do we do education around that? How do we understand that those things are going to be in balance? And how do we be, I think, practical and strategic about articulating that all these things are part of what makes crypto so interesting and important and novel, and it is something that we've never seen before. We've never seen 
code facilitating a financial system, creating an entirely new economy, creating economic opportunity that is not gated by people who are not looking out, I would argue, for you know, users and consumers, right? In the same way that crypto is accountable, creates accountability to those people. So all these things I think are, to Jake's point about philosophy is kind of what I wanted to add, are coming to the forefront. And I think it is it is an extreme, extremely complicated situation that OFAC has sort of, you know, muddled into here. And I think it is kind of a point in time of the evolution and, and mature and maturation of this industry and of this ecosystem where we have to figure out, you know, how do we articulate how these things can coexist and what needs to be preserved at all costs and where there is maybe some ability to think about those balances of the weighted interests and how we can um, how we can be supportive of the broader, you know, goal. I'd love it if you can comment just on, you know, like on this new challenge and kind of like how you think we can go about solving it between, you know, as we mentioned, freedom of speech and, and software as speech and this like new transmission of money and this new system that we're dealing with. Well, in a way, the president's executive order, which uh, came out like, I guess, four or five months ago now, is part of the answer to that. There's a lot of novel questions that have been raised by the advent of crypto technology. Um, there's some challenges and risks for sure, but there's gigantic, gigantic opportunities to essentially promote inclusion uh, for the tens of millions of people in the United States and the billions of people globally who lack access to basic financial services. And as the technology develops and the use cases develops, it becomes a powerful tool to empower people in all sorts of ways. You know, the huge public policy questions regarding not only the ability of people to access the traditional system, but the power of intermediaries, the power of tech intermediaries, for example, the amount of information they hold on all of us um, and the price essentially that we pay in accessing basic social services, access to you know, uh, social networks or what have you that we sort of assume away as the cost of, of uh, being in a wired network society. Crypto is an ability to, is a, gives us the power to empower the individual again in a way that is, I think, more in keeping with our historical and legal traditions and giving people more of an ability to decide how they share, how they participate. And these are really hard questions. So for a lot of us who have been in the space, we've been rooting for an, an administration to take a step back and do essentially a strategic review of what the opportunity is with this technology and what the challenges are and how to develop public policy around it in a way that's coherent, you know, protects important public policy objectives, but at the same time welcomes this next sort of, you know, uh, inflection point in the adoption of technology and how we engage as a society. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Th this has been incredible. I wanted to get a couple of questions in that are really meant for the you know crypto community to get a better understanding of what's happening in ways that are more tangible to them. Um, and so maybe this will be the you know the final few things that can hopefully help some of them uh, see through what's happening. I think one of the things I really wanted to cover is people got really scared when the um, uh, developer in the Netherlands uh, went to jail, right? And you know, from from my perspective, like I, I am not an expert on legal or policy or anything of that nature. And it seems most of crypto Twitter isn't either. Um, can can one of you folks help help the community understand <laughs> um, kind of like, you know, what happened? Because people automatically assume these two things are like one of the same. You have sanctions and you have this guy going to jail. 
but it's not at all clear that this is the case. And honestly, there's not much to unwrap because we don't really know what's going on over there. So, I mean, first I would say don't take legal advice from Twitter, although there's plenty on offer there. It's probably not the best idea. Don't <laughs> take here. it from me either. But um, yeah, just look, I, I think especially when things like this happen, a lot of rumors fly. But here's basically all we know. We know that one of the core developers of Tornado Cash was detained by Dutch authorities. As far as I know, at least at, at, you know, at this time that we're recording this, there have been no charges. So we don't actually know what alleged crime was committed. We do have some public statements from Dutch authorities which suggest that this individual was involved in concealing criminal financial flows or facilitating money laundering. What we don't know is, is the allegation simply that because this person developed code and that code was then used by some bad actor, the original developer of the code, the writer of the code, is somehow liable for how the code was used, or if this individual was actually involved in some other way proactively in facilitating some type of criminal activity. We just don't know. It's shameful that we don't know. Dutch authorities should have explained this immediately, but we're still waiting for more clarity about that. I would say I don't think that developers around the world need to be scared, especially here in the US. I, I do believe that code is speech and that there are strong protections for software developers. And as far as I'm aware, you know, Sheila Faryard, tell me if I'm wrong, but I have not heard even an inkling of interest among US policymakers or law enforcement in going after software developers who've done nothing more than write code. So that's that's at least what I've seen so far. I'll just say I am in no way an authority of any kind on the Dutch legal system. So I don't know what's normal in terms of charges, due process, like any of those things. I mean, I just have absolutely no idea. Um, but I do think it is, it is to say the least unfortunate that we don't know the nature of, you know, what activity, if any, I would argue, led to this detention. And so I will echo, though, and I think it's such an important point to land. There is, I will say, like zero evidence that the United States government in all of its many <laughs> facets and manifestations is in any way looking at developers and pointing any kind of finger at them. Because, you know, they could have, right? There's not just one developer trying to cash. They could have taken an action and looked inside their, their jurisdictional boundary and decided to do, you know, something um, along the lines of what we're what we think we're seeing potentially in the Netherlands, but there's just zero indication that, that is even on the table or on anyone's radar. And so, uh, if that were to happen, it would be such an unbelievable. It would be going against flying in the face of so much legal precedent and jurisprudence that it would be beyond shocking. But again, zero idea what the status quo is in the Netherlands, what their ordinary procedures are. I, I think we just really are flying pretty blind on this one. You know, every single comment that everybody here has made is that, you know, everybody here believes in the rule of law. Everybody here, you know, believes in fighting against, you know, terrible regimes and, and criminals and, and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it has to be done in a way that's appropriate, in a way that's enforceable, in a way that's correct, um, in a way that ultimately like works well with the other principles upon which we've like built our, our countries and communities and, and so on. And so I want to say such a huge thank you to uh, Jake, Faryar, and Sheila. You guys have been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on and talking to us about this um, dicey topic. Thank you, this was fun. Yeah, thank Thanks, you, Victor. That was an awesome conversation and I'm really glad that we had it here on Around the Block. 
it's been something of a pleasure these last two weeks uh, to host some of the most important uh, people discussing the most important topics that are touching our industry. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure that you go back to last week's episode where I play host for Brian Armstrong and Vitalik Buterin as they talk about decentralization and credible neutrality for Ethereum. Thank you so much. Today's conversation was recorded August 30th and is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties. 